All right. How's everybody doing? I hope everybody's doing well. I uh, hope everybody's starting to enjoy summer a little bit. I hope you're not letting all the craziness in the world um, get to you too much. I'm going to move this just a little bit. And uh, I don't, I'm going to refrain from talking about too much of that uh, today. I want to talk about, I'm kind of excited about what I have to talk about. Um, one of the things that I've been doing this week is watching, uh, kind of digging into a little bit what uh, archaeologists are saying uh, about the Bible. Now, I'm certainly not an expert on this. I probably shouldn't even be touching on it. I've just read some of the literature, and it's a very interesting uh, subject. Because normally, when like if you were to go in and Google or go into YouTube and pull up biblical archaeology, you're going to find a lot of stuff that's going to really support uh, the earlier stories that are in the Bible, the Exodus uh, with Moses, the march through the wilderness, the uh, destruction and wiping out of the Canaanites, the Jericho city, that kind of thing. And, uh, and a lot of, you know, conservative voices out there and preachers will pull up archaeological evidence to support various different things. And what's interesting about that is that a lot of that um, archaeology is really outdated. And it really was done by people that it could appear, at least uh, it does to some, and looking at it does to me too, that it had sort of a political agenda that had to do with um, the Jews possessing Jerusalem and having the land. But the latest uh, archaeological consensus is that most of the stuff that we read in the Bible uh, about the Exodus, Moses leaving Egypt, uh, trekking through the wilderness and taking the promised land does not bear up under uh, archaeological, there, there's no archaeological evidence for it. In fact, not only is there no archaeological evidence for it, there's absolutely archaeological evidence against it. Now, again, I'm not an expert on this, but I don't know how we can say that we have a heart for the truth if we're not willing to explore things that maybe challenge our paradigms and look at them. Now, having said that, uh, that actually does not bother me um, at all if there's no archaeological evidence or historical evidence. So historical evidence would be there's no writings in the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the ancient Sumerian texts that talk about Moses or the Exodus or the, the Canaanite wipeout either. Um, so those are the parts of the Bible that, when taken literally, bother me the most. So it, it's helpful for me to think that God didn't order those things. But then you got to think, why are the stories there? Why are the stories there? And I'm going to read to you something from um, Psalm 78 that I think we missed. Uh, in Psalm 78, it says, My people hear my teaching, listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter hidden things. Things from old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from our descendants. We will tell them to the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. And he goes on there. But he says, I'll open my mouth in a parable, and I will utter hidden things. The word hidden things there in the NIV is is sanitized for literalism. 
What he says is there, I will open my mouth in dark sayings. So basically what he's saying here is that the oral tradition was a tradition of, of myth and a tradition of parable that was designed to teach things, not necessarily something that was meant to be taken historically. You'll see where I'm going with this and why this is important with the uh, conscious and the subconscious mind and co-creating in a minute. I want to just kind of drop that out there to you uh because i'm going to i'm going to look at a story that is in the text there uh, that part of the text that history cannot validate and what i think is is that we're not supposed to be reading it literally anyway that it's teaching us something else but to get there let's look at some other things from the bible so let's just put that on the shelf for a minute i'll come back to it in uh luke 17 uh jesus says this uh we we all quote this Usually we just quote it, the kingdom of heaven is within you, or the kingdom of God is within you. But I want to read the whole verse. It says, once on being asked by the Pharisees, the Pharisees, his opponents, when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom is not something that can be observed, nor will people say here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is Within you. Now, the NIV again says, and I've, I've gone over this, but the NIV says the kingdom of God is among you, but there's a there's an asterisk by it. And if you go into the footnotes of the asterisk, it says it, should, it could be translated, or within you. Now, the truth is, the word that's used here is translated within. I did a teaching on this and did a study, thorough study on it. Every place in the New Testament that this word, this Greek word that we transliterate, E-N, so if you were to take... Because the Greek language does not use uh, English letters. So we, transliteration is to take the Greek characters and change them into English, their English equivalents. So that's what I mean by that. So the Greek word there would be en, and it means within. Every time it's used in the New Testament, without exception, every time Paul says in Christ, uh, you are in Christ. Whoever is in Christ is a new creation. In him we were raised. In him we were crucified. Uh, in him we were baptized. Uh, Christ in you, when it talks about someone going in the temple or being in a room, it's always E-N. So it's always talking about that interior space or being in something or, or within something. Um, there's only two times that it's ever translated in the Bible, New Testament, differently. And it's used hundreds of times. I looked at every example. There's only two times it's translated differently. The One of these times is here in Luke 17, and that's verse... 20, sorry, 20, 21, I want to be accurate, and John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glorious of the only begotten of the Father. That's the only two places that it's translated that way. The only two places. So, why do they do that? Well, I think it's obvious, because Jesus, because, understand, again, you got to remember that your Bibles, particularly the New International Version and other versions of the Bible, are written to sell copies. They are written to sell copies. And so they are also produced, for the most part, uh, from the Western model of Christianity and understanding. So that's going to influence the translation. Now, here in Luke 17, verse 30, it says some startling things about the kingdom of God that does not work with evangelical Christianity. So again, I'm going to say this again. 
the kingdom of God being among you, the way it's translated by the NIV version, is not how it's translated in the older English versions. It's not consistent with the way that word is translated everywhere else in the scripture. So, if we're consistent then, Jesus is saying, when they come and they say, when does the kingdom of God come? And he says, the kingdom does not come with observation. So they're asking him for the event. When does it come? When does it happen? And he says, the kingdom does not come with observation. The kingdom is within you. Now, the problem this presents for evangelicals is he's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to the Pharisees and he's saying it in a present tense uh, way. So the narrative in the Christian community has been that the only way you get into the kingdom is by the observation of the event. In other words, those that witnessed Jesus being crucified or those that witnessed him being raised from the dead, that observed him, that saw him, and then those of us that believe the testimony. When you believe the testimony, God does something inside of you. That's Christian tradition more than it is biblical teaching. Now, what Jesus is saying before his death before his resurrection, before he conquers principalities and powers and whatever it is that Paul tells us, he's telling the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is within you. So that creates a problem for us uh, if, we, if we come from that paradigm. But what if Jesus isn't interested in that? What if, what if that's not the point of the kingdom at all, what we've said? And what if the reality is, is that what Jesus is talking about is the kingdom of God is your interior person, your, your inner space, your innermost being, or all of it that's in there, that that's the place of the kingdom. But he also says it does not come with observation. So it doesn't come from the outside. It's, you can't look at something on the outside and observe it and say this is it. That's the problem with all these people taking the book of Revelation right now and trying to make it fit current events. They've always done this. And we're still waiting on the second coming because, in a sense, they're waiting for a kingdom to come in an event and to come with observation. And they're looking at what's going on and then they're trying to make it fit the scriptures or make the scriptures fit what's going on to validate either narrative. Um, so... The point I'm trying to make is when we're talking about the kingdom, we're talking about an inward reality. We're talking about something inside of you. Now, this is not just a teaching that came with Sigmund Freud. This is this is an older teaching. You will find this teaching in various ways prior to the advent of psychology, prior to the advent of Sigmund Freud or Carl Jung. You'll find it in almost every different major uh, mystical tradition, East and West. And that is the idea, and you'll find it in the Bible, and that is the reality, let's put it that way, the reality that you have two minds. Now, we're conditioned to call these two minds or identify these two minds as the conscious mind and the subconscious mind. Uh, older writings that predate uh, the advent of psychology called it the voluntary mind, and the involuntary mind. Um, <clears throat> in Proverbs, it says, the heart of man is like deep waters, and a man of understanding draws it out. You know the verse in Proverbs, that says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Um, 
It's not the best translation. Actually, what it says there is, as a man thinks in his heart, so it is. So it talks about this thinking capacity that's in the heart. So you can call it the conscious mind, the subconscious mind, the voluntary mind, the involuntary mind, or you can call it thinking in the heart. But humanity, for the most part, universally has recognized these two aspects of the mind. I like the term voluntary and involuntary uh, a lot because it describes the functions of these two minds. Now, the conscious mind would be the voluntary mind. This is what you're using right now. It's what I'm using right now. I'm speaking to you uh, by choice. So the conscious mind is always uh, uh, directive. It's it's the it's the driver in the car seat, if you will. So the re- the reason you have the conscious mind is so that you can make choice, and so that you can make choice from a place of critical thinking. Now, by critical thinking, here's what I mean. I, I just mean separating things out, separating the wheat from the chaff or the dross from the metal. In other words, we have the capacity to do this sort of rational, linear, evaluative thinking where we put things in categories. Uh, that's the role of the conscious mind, of your cognition, to be able to think rationally, to be able to divide and discern what you want and what you don't want, what you think is moral, what you don't think is moral, what you want to keep, what you don't want to keep, what you want to do today, what you don't want to do, what you want to eat, what you don't want to eat. So in order to have free will, the whole purpose of the conscious mind is to divide into categories or to separate or to sort or to sift. That's what it does. So it's constantly evaluating, constantly reflecting on things for the purpose of trying to make a decision so that you can do stuff, right? That's why they call it the voluntary mind or the conscious mind. The subconscious mind or the involuntary mind is uh, a different mind, and it is the mind, and it's recognized in ancient traditions of meditation as being the part of the mind that controls the physical uh, body, the involuntary aspects of it, the digestion, the breathing. That's why breath work comes so much into play in older forms of meditation because what they're trying to do in breath work is not just make your body healthy or whatever, but the belief was that uh, as you access the breath, you're accessing spirit. This belief goes all the way back to the Jewish culture uh, at the time of Jesus, that as you're breathing, you're accessing spirit, spiritual energy. It's called prana in some places. It's called chi in some places in the East. But really, in uh, the, the ancient Hebrew, it was called spirit. So that's why spirit and wind and breath, it's, it's the Hebrew word ruach. And so the belief was that, you know, as you're, as you're breathing that stuff in and, uh, you're breathing in the energy, you're bringing in the substance out of which everything is, is made. You're breathing in the sunlight, they would even say. But you're also contacting the part of you, the part of your mind that controls all these functions that you do not have conscious or willful control over or choice. And that allows you then through the breath and through the clearing away of the clutter of the conscious mind, it allows you to, uh, the ancient Christians called it 
pushing the brain into the heart, pushing your mind into the heart, or allows you to clear away that awareness so that the subconscious can become more open and more present to you because that's where the kingdom of God is. That's where the kingdom of God is. Now, your subconscious is being conditioned constantly. Now, the idea is for you to be the driver, for your uh, conscious mind, your voluntary mind, to condition your subconscious mind by choice. But unfortunately, that's not usually what happens to us because we don't even know that we can do it. We don't even know that we can do it with intention or we don't do it with intention. So what happens is, is we become programmed by society. We become programmed uh, by the messages that we receive over and over again. Uh, anything that we agree with from the conscious mind, the subconscious mind is conditioned to accept and to begin to reproduce in the form of beliefs and direction, actions, emotions, imaginations, dreams, all that stuff that you're not necessarily uh, uh, in control of. Because the subconscious mind is meant to create your life. It is the part of you that is the kingdom of God. It's the part of you that has the divine that empowers you to create the world that you live in. So what I want to submit, so let's come back to the older stories in the Bible, because what I want to suggest to you is that rather than being literal stories of a literal Canaan and a literal Exodus and a literal Moses and a literal conquest, I want to suggest to you that these are states of consciousness that we can adopt or that we can pass through, and that the literal interpretation is a blind it's a blind, deliberately there. Uh, in ancient, in any ancient esoteric teaching, they always had blinds because the belief was that there was teaching so deep and so sacred that one had to be worthy. And I think when they were saying worthy, they meant one had to be ready. Not everybody's ready for this. Not everybody's ready to hear this. Not everybody wants this. But if you want it, you discover the pearl of great price. If you want it, you discover it's the thing. And that is that we are all an expression of divinity. Now, people will reject that, but most people that reject that are taking a literal historical interpretation of the Bible, and that's the blind, because you're not ready to hear it. So, let's look at the conquest of Canaan. So God raises up Moses and God says, Moses, the, the cry of the children of Israel has come up to me and I want you to go deliver these slaves in Egypt and I want you to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey into the land of Canaan. So we know the story. Moses goes and he gets them out and, and they go through all this trial in the wilderness and they get to uh, where they're ready to cross over the Jordan and they send 12 spies, one from each tribe. There, there's teaching there, but I, I don't want to get locked into that. So, of the 12 tribes, they go over and cross over into the land. And we know that 10 of the spies brought back what was called an evil report. That they spread it to their brethren and said, Yeah, it's a, it's a land that flows with milk and honey. A little bit of truth. Um, but the... The giants are there. There's fortified cities there. There's armies there. We were like grasshoppers. Here's the key. 
We were like grasshoppers in our own sight. <laughs> and so we were in their sight. We were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. And it says that that evil report went out. Then you have Joshua. Joshua stands up and says something totally different. He says, brethren, he says, he says, don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid. He says, yes, there's giants. Yes, there's, uh, you know, fortified cities over there. But the God who delivered us from Egypt is going to go before us. And we are well able to take the land. We, we will devour. There'll be food for us. And we are well able to take the land. Now, Joshua, at this point, if you read the story carefully, Joshua is standing alone. I know we say it was Joshua and Caleb, but it was Joshua. Caleb is on the fence. <laughs> Caleb is on the fence. Caleb doesn't know which way to go exactly. But he eventually goes with Joshua. So you have Joshua and Caleb who say, God is going to give us land. We're well able to take it. We're well able to conquer it. The rest of the children of Israel were saying, the Lord brought us out in the wilderness to die. God hates us. Read Deuteronomy chapter 1. They said in their tents, God hates us, and he brought us out in the wilderness to die. So here's what happened. Everybody from that generation died in the wilderness. So in truth then, God brought them out in the wilderness to die. The only two that didn't die off and got to go in from that generation was Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb experienced what they believed, what they perceived, and what they saw. The rest of the generation experienced what they believed, what they perceived, and what they saw. So the truth is, both groups created their own reality. Both groups created their own version of God. And God did to them according to the pattern that they had created in their minds and in their hearts about what God was going to do to them. I want to say that again. Joshua and Caleb said, no, God's going to take us over into the land. He's going to drive out the inhabitants. We are well able to take the land. Caleb comes along, says we're well able to take the land. The other ten spies and the rest of the children of Israel said, no, God hates us, and he brought us out in the wilderness to die. Both statements were true at the same time. God did both things. So the issue is they had the power to create their own reality. And God did according to the God that they had fashioned in their own mind. Both statements were true at the same time. Both people got what they created. Both people got what they believed. Both people got what they manifested. <laughs> if that makes sense. I don't think we understand for one minute how powerful uh, we are as creators and what we're creating for ourselves every day. Most of us, like the children of Israel, are stuck in a group consciousness, some kind of group consciousness, some kind of group consensus about reality and the way that it is. And for that entire group, 
That will be your reality. Every once in a while, there are people who are able to break with the group consensus. They're able to break with the group and believe or think or manifest something else. So I want to give you some encouragement today and tell you it, it does. You have the power, I believe. I believe this with all my heart. You have the power. You are able, capable of creating the world that you want to live in for yourself. And maybe we're asking ourselves the wrong question. Maybe we're asking ourselves what is truth as though truth can always in every instance be verifiable, be objectively solid and sound and objectively verifiable. It's, uh, what, 10.30 or something here. That's true. If you're watching out east, it's 12.30. If you're watching in the UK, Derek, I don't know what time it is there. So while I'm saying it's 10.30 in the morning, that's true. Somebody in, you know, on Eastern Time says 12.30. Somebody in Europe says it's, you know, 8.30 at night or, or 6.30 at night or whatever it is. We're all telling the truth, but it's different. <laughs> and we fight and argue and wrestle over things to be true that maybe, that, that we cannot objectively verify because everything in the world is in flux. That's why science, anybody who knows what they're talking about with science does not speak with certainty. That's why Sigmund Freud could say, or not Sigmund Freud, uh, Carl Jung could say, certainty is the sign of an uncultivated mind. Anybody I've ever met that was a true expert on anything would admit there was more that they didn't know than what they knew. And it's like you get to a point of expertise when you devote your life to something, the, the uncertainty, the mystery of it opens up more. Because everything in this world is in flux. Because this world, this is going to sound really radical and crazy, and some of you are going to say, Aaron, you've lost your mind. But to a large degree, this world is the byproduct of our consciousness. We have it the other way around. That's why Jesus said, the kingdom does not come with observation, the kingdom is within you. We want to verifiably, verifiably and empirically establish things out here. That's how the conscious mind thinks. That's the conscious mind's job. The problem is the subconscious mind thinks completely differently. So here's the point. The subconscious mind does not discriminate because its purpose is not to make a choice. The subconscious mind does not think in a linear, objective, or rational way, but the subconscious mind will reproduce for you what you continue to feed it or impress upon it or whatever gets suggested to it. And we see this all throughout the Bible. So in the very beginning, this is the very first thing we see with humanity. Remember the story of the snake and the two naked vegans in the garden, Adam and Eve? And God said, stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day you eat of it, you're going to die. And the serpent comes along and the serpent says, you're not going to die. God knows in the day you eat of this, your eyes will be open and you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. And that's why God's keeping it from you. And the very next verse is very interesting because it says, when Eve saw that the tree was good for food 
and that it was desirable to make one wise. She took the fruit and she ate it. If you compare those two verses, when implies a process of time. So the way we've played this out in our Sunday school stories is we've said that, uh, you know, the, the servant just talks to Eve and she just goes and bites the apple. Now, granted, I don't think this is a literal story at all. But when implies a process of time, which means there was a process of time between when the serpent talked to her and when she her perception changed. And that's the key. Her perception of the tree changed. She's supposed to stay away from it because God said, then the serpent comes along. And what does he do? He makes suggestions. It's desirable. It'll make you wise. So when she saw, she saw what he said. She saw what he said. She saw what he suggested to her that she would see. And then the conscious mind made a decision on that. So there's an interplay so that you and I are making decisions, oftentimes not from a level of the conscious mind. We are making decisions from the level of the subconscious mind based on the programming that we've received. But at the same time, the conscious mind has the job of programming the subconscious mind through the power of suggestion. Through the power of suggestion, making suggestions to the subconscious mind will produce reality for you. It'll produce for you what you suggest. Jesus, I think this is what Jesus is teaching. Let me read this. This is what Jesus is teaching in Mark chapter 4. He teaches the parable of the sower. You guys know the parable of the sower, I trust. And I'm going to show you how much your subconscious programming causes you to see what maybe isn't in the text. So he says, uh, when he explains it, he tells us the sower sows the word. And he talks about four different types of ground. He talks about ground by the wayside. He talks about rocky ground, ground with stones. He talks about thorny ground. And he talks about good ground. And he says the sower, so there's a sower, there's a ground, and there's seed. So he says the sower sows the word. I want you to think that in, keep that in mind. He sows the word. And the ground represents the heart. It represents what I'm identifying as the subconscious mind. As a man thinks in his heart, so it is. Um, not so is he. Wrong translation. As a man thinks in his heart, so it is. Now, we are conditioned to read this from an evangelical perspective. We assume that the word here is what we're preaching, or this book, because we call this the word of God. Or we assume that the word of the kingdom is, Jesus died for your sins, you need to give your life to Jesus in order to be saved. Find it in the Gospels. Find that anywhere in the Gospels for me, where somebody prayed the sinner's prayer, where they had an altar call, where they, they, they were taught, uh, you know, if you pray these things, then you, you'll get in. Uh, and if, you know, where did Jesus emphasize over and over again his, his de death, burial, and resurrection in his teachings? He didn't do it. So what we're conditioned to believe is that as we're spreading seed, as we're, as we're handing out our little tracts or uh, telling people about the gospel or quoting scripture, because we quote scripture, if it's powerful, it's going to change them. It has some kind of supernatural dynamic to it. So we're conditioned then to think 
that what we're talking about are different groups of people and how they're going to respond to the message of salvation. So some people hear it and they don't get it. Some people hear it and, and it doesn't penetrate their heart and, and they believe for a while, but then they fall away. But then we say once saved, always saved. And then what is falling away and what does that mean? But we were conditioned to see that as a parable about salvation. But th th that's your conditioning. That's your subconscious mind controlling your perception of the scripture, period. Your presuppositions that you're bringing in is what's going on. I have a different set of presuppositions. The word there is the word logos. The sower sows the logos. Now, if you've been listening to me any time at all, we've been talking about John 1 for quite a while. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God and the logos was God. And he was in the beginning with God and all things, watch this, all things were made by him and without him nothing has been made that has been made. Without the Logos, nothing that has been made has been made. Nothing. Not just talking about trees and plants and, and oceans. We're talking about airplanes and chairs and tables and 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 uh, food, gourmet food, <laughs> gourmet food or hot dogs, whatever. Nothing that has been made. Nothing comes into existence apart from the principle of the Logos. And then John 1.14, just like in Luke 17, verse 21, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Just like in, in 17, Luke 17.21, the kingdom of God is among you. But if you have a good Bible, an honest Bible, a transparent Bible, it'll have a footnote, even in John 1.14, and it'll say, or within, because every other place in the scriptures, every single other place in the scriptures, that that word en is used, that's used in John 1.14, it's talking about being in, in Christ, Christ in you, in the temple, in the house. You get it? So the translators changed it because I don't think they could, I don't think they could deal with the fact that the word became flesh and dwells within us and we behold his glory the glory is of the only begotten of the father by looking within not looking without the kingdom doesn't come with observation by looking without the kingdom of god is within you i think that's the gospel i think that's what jesus was teaching i think that's what jesus was opening up for us and those two little words that are not translated with integrity to the rest of the text are blinds to keep people that don't want to see it and aren't ready to see it from seeing it. Those are the natural-minded people that Paul's talking about versus the spiritual-minded people that he's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So if we understand that then, then the Logos, the, the Logos, the power for creation is inside of you. But the conscious mind is the sower. The conscious mind is the sower that decides not what's true empirically and what's not true, not what store, not who's telling the truth and what story to believe, not what narrative to believe, because to be honest with you, all these narratives are skewed by group consciousness and group consensus. We're trained to think a certain way. We're conditioned to think a certain way. And so the subconscious mind operates that way, and that's what we create. Does that, is this making sense to you? Just like the children of Israel, we're going to die in the wilderness. God brought us out in the wilderness to die. They were right. God brought them out in the wilderness to die. He did. He absolutely, that's absolutely what happened. And this is why, see, here's, here's the crazy thing about Christianity. You want to know what we don't, one of the things we really don't talk about in Christianity, there are so many Jesuses running around. There are so many Jesuses running around. There is not even a consistent vision of 
Jesus and who Jesus is. Aaron, what do you, what do you mean by that? I mean, and, and everybody will say, you gotta be enlightened to see it. You gotta have the spirit to see it. You gotta be born again to see it. But to the Baptists, to the Baptist Jesus, uh, the, he, he died for your sins and for salvation. The, uh, miracles have passed away. Tongues has passed away. Signs and wonders have passed away. And, and that Jesus that they pray to acts very much that way in accordance with that. He doesn't heal. Uh, people don't get filled with the Spirit and speak in tongues. Miracles don't happen. Um, then you've got, you know, you got the Catholic Jesus that shows up in transubstantiation. And, um, and their Jesus acts very much like their Jesus is supposed to. Then you have the Pentecostal Jesus. The Pentecostal Jesus is full of power and full of life and doing signs and wonders and miracles. And lo and behold, if you get a group of people that are believing that, signs and wonders and miracles happen. So the Baptists are saying, well, the Holy Spirit will show you the gifts have passed away. The Pentecostals are saying, no, the Holy Spirit will show you that the gifts are for today. The Catholic Jesus will show you you've got to confess your sins and go take communion. Um, then you have the prosperity Jesus of <clears throat> Kenneth Copeland. You have the soon coming uh, Jesus of David Wilkerson, who's coming in vengeance. Um, we can't even get a consistent Jesus because the reality is we're creating that Jesus. We're creating that out of our own thinking and our believing, just like the children of Israel did. We're creating it out of our own consciousness. So when we understand the Bible as states of consciousness that open up the sun in you, we beheld the glory of the sun in you. Paul said, when, when the time came that God revealed his son in me, not to me, Christ in you among the Gentiles is the hope of glory. So what we're supposed to see is our own divine sonship, our, our, our daughtership. It's not a gender thing. Please please don't hear what I'm not saying. Our own divine image, uh, reproduction, that we are here. Why did we come here into this three-dimensional world? Uh, it isn't to just do spiritual practices and become one with God, because we were already one with God. Um. So why did we come into this mess where where there's so much quarrel and and all this stuff? Um, it's part of it is training us. Maybe all of it is training us how to be creators, how to be gods. Oh, that's Mormonism. <laughs> See, there's another Jesus that acts differently and teaches differently. So whatever. So, the parable of the sower, what he's talking about here is the conscious mind giving suggestion to the subconscious mind about what you want to create, what you want to manifest, what you want to see in your life. And the subconscious mind or the soil receiving that and how that process works internally. Now, I'm going to do something that's taboo. I'm going to show you a tarot card <coughs> because the same teaching is in the esoteric meanings of the tarot. Now, before you go off and say, oh, tarot's evil and of the devil, do your research. Um, it came out of Christian Europe, and a lot of the images that you'll see on the cards are images of Christians. I have a whole teaching on that. I can't go over it again, but you're just completely misinformed. But, you know, if you believe tarot cards are evil, and you go mess with tarot cards, you get a demon, then I suggest you don't go mess with tarot cards at all. Because I can promise you, if you believe that, you're going to create it. And you'll create the demon that will come and attack you. Let me just get off on that for a minute, too. 
If you believe there's a cosmic evil force out there that's attacking you, that's inhabiting you, that's oppressing you, that you open the door to because you played with tarot cards or you read your horoscope today or you had sex outside of marriage or whatever the case may be, if your subconscious believes that, your subconscious will produce that for you and produce all the manifestations of it for you. So it's amazing how much the devil quit attacking me when I quit looking for him everywhere. It was amazing how much the devil left me alone when I didn't bother with him anymore. And I can promise you, I've looked into tarot, I've done energy work, I've done Reiki, I've done meditation for the last four years. Um, I am not demonized in any way, shape, or form. I don't get up in the morning distressed and depressed. I'm not, uh, you know, sick in my body. Um, I've, I've got more peace and freedom and happiness and joy and definitely more love and compassion. Not that I'm there yet. I'm still working on it. But I was conditioned to be judgmental. <laughs> I was conditioned to be judgmental. For 40 damn years, I was conditioned to be judgmental. And I conditioned other people to be judgmental. So that stuff's still in my subconscious and it still comes out every once in a while. I get triggered and go. But I'm going to tell you, otherwise, I'm, you know, my life is better now than it was before. But I'm going to tell you something. I know a lot of demonized Christians. I know a lot of Christians who won't mess with that stuff and they can't get along with anybody and they'll talk about you behind your back and they'll lie about you behind your back and, and they're just full of strife and, 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 ugh, you guys know it. They're insecure, uh, incredibly insecure, attacking one another, mean-spirited. Where does all that come from? It comes from the psychological conditioning that they're manifesting and that they're giving birth to. So having said that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull up a tarot card. Now, for those of you that are like super prudes, uh, I'm just gonna warn you, I'm gonna show you the lover card, the lover's card, and they're naked. <laughs> So if that bothers you, you might want to close your eyes or log off for just a second. But I want to show it to you. So here it is. I'm going to let you just get a look at it. So you got the man and the woman, and you got the angel up at the top. I want you to notice where the woman's looking, and I want you to notice where the man's looking. And all the men and women are out there like, yeah, we know that's where the man's looking. Actually, the teaching behind this card is talking about the conscious and the subconscious mind. Adam represents the conscious mind. Eve represents the subconscious mind. Adam represents that which plants the seed, the sower. <laughs> Adam's the sower. Eve is the ground, the feminine principle, or that which receives the seed for the purpose of reproducing and bringing forth the manifestation of the seed. Right? So the man is the conscious mind, the woman is the subconscious mind. But I want you to take a look again. Where Where is the man, where is the woman looking, and where is the man looking? The woman is looking up at the divine. The woman is looking up into heaven. The man is looking into the in, at, at the woman. So here's here's the point, gang. If another another image for the subconscious is the moon. So if the sun is the divine, if the sun is God, then the subconscious is reflecting who God is to the conscious mind. So whatever you believe about God, that's going to be reflected and come up into your conscious mind, and that will be the reality that you create for yourself. Because the conscious mind cannot look directly at God. The conscious mind has to look through the lens of the subconscious who is looking at the divine. The woman's beholding the divine and reflecting the divine to the man. That's the meaning of the card.
Not about romance, gang. Sorry if somebody gave you a reading and said, oh, there's a lover coming your way. <laughs> Does it make sense to you? Are you, you tracking with me? The, the reason I keep emphasizing this over and over again is because you'll see this. Once you see this, you can't unsee it. You will see that people create what they believe. And, you, and, and it's powerful. It's powerful. Because in, in the ancient mystical teachings, uh, universally and in the Bible, this stuff that we think is solid is made of mind stuff. It's made of logos. And the, the uh, what do you call it? Line between the two is very uh, narrow. It's very thin. And one can influence the other. That's what faith is about. So the question becomes maybe not so much what's true. What, what world do you want to live in? What world do you want to live in? Now this gets interesting because when the sower's sowing the word, some falls by the wayside, they don't understand it. So the, con the subconscious mind doesn't pick it up at all. Maybe because it's so conditioned to believe one way that when a new teaching comes, it's just like, Psh, I can't, I can't stand under that. Some goes into the stony ground and it says it did not get any depth of earth. Now watch this. It didn't get any depth of earth. So when the sun came up, it scorched it. So what that means is it didn't get deep down and get rooted in the subconscious mind. So it could not bring forth fruit. And so the conscious mind, which is obsessed with things out here and what's happening, all of a sudden, you know, it hears this and wow, receives it with joy because it's being moved on, upon by the forces that are out here. But it doesn't give enough attention to it and enough time to it for whatever reason it doesn't get down into the subconscious mind and take root and become part of that person's inner being and so persecution and affliction arises and immediately they fall away or the thing dries up so it isn't fruitful others the word gets in and it takes root in the subconscious but the scripture says the, there's thorny ground in there and the thorn represents cares lust pressures things of this world whatever all the thorns are is all the other programming in your subconscious. This is why people can it cannot very often become effective conscious co-creators of their own reality because they send a suggestion into their subconscious mind for something new and their subconscious gets confused. So they get mixed messages. They become too sold. They have they have doubts. The thorns that are there so what has to happen is you have to weed out the thorns. That's the whole point, the whole process. When the Bible speaks about refining the gold or refining the silver or removing the dross, that's what it's talking about. So all that stuff is coming up so that you can remove it so that you become congruent inside about what you believe. So where do we get started with this? Let me give you some. So I hope that, I hope this helps you. I hope this this makes so this helped me so much. If you read read through Mark chapter four, he says that with the measure you use, conscious mind, it will be measured back to you, subconscious mind, and to you who have more will be given, and eventually you'll create something and you'll manifest something. So I want you to remember the subconscious mind in the tarot is the lovers. 
So the subconscious mind and the conscious mind work together better when they're in rapport and when there's love. In other words, you can't force it. And this is where 90% of the mistakes I know that I made in faith, when things didn't happen for me, I, I can identify now through this teaching, every time it didn't happen, I was dependent on a God outside of me to make it happen, number one. Number two, I wasn't fully congruent because I didn't know how to incubate these things and work with the subconscious mind. But more often than not, I was fearful or I was operating from a place of force. And we teach this, you know, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent must take it by force. And so we go out there and we, we scream and we holler and we and we get worked up and whatever. And it's pretty good for an emotional release, make us feel good. Uh, but most of the time, nothing would happen from that. <laughs> Because the subconscious mind responds to gentle suggestion. The subconscious mind responds to love. So don't try to force your subconscious mind. Now, I can, I can prove this to you. Um, have you ever had one of those moments where you're trying to think of an actor's name, trying to think of a part in a movie? I, I saw this actor, and I was like, I know I've seen him before. I know I've seen him before. And I could hear just a little bit. Uh, about half a sentence from a movie that I'd seen before, and it was driving me nuts that I couldn't remember that. And I sat down, and, and I'm just like, Ugh. You, you ever experienced that? And maybe then later on, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it just comes to you. You ever have that happen? So I learned, and this just happened to me the other night. I was watching this movie. I saw this, oh, where do I know him from? Where do I know him from? And I realized, oh, I'm getting into force. I'm trying to pressure my subconscious mind. I know it's in my subconscious. I'm trying to pressure my subconscious to give it to me. And so I just took a deep breath and I just relaxed and I let go of all the tension and the pressure and I just gave myself the gentle suggestion, I will remember this in a moment. And sure enough, it wasn't but a couple minutes later and I could remember the movie, I could remember the scene, and I could remember the actor's name. That almost works for me without fail, almost every single time without fail. If somebody is trying to talk to me and they say, oh, I forgot what I said. I will always give him a gentle suggestion. Oh, you'll remember in a minute. And almost always without fail, they remember. So the point is to be gentle with yourself, to not force it or try to overdo it. Don't do it too much. If you're sitting there repeatedly over and over and over, like let's say you want physical health, and you're sitting there repeatedly over and over and over giving yourself the suggestion, I'm healthy, I'm healthy, I'm healthy, I'm healthy, come on, I'm healthy, my organs are healthy, my body is healthy, my organs are healthy, my body is healthy, then you're trying too hard. This is something that responds to playfulness, that responds to lightheartedness, that responds to relaxation, thus the whole purpose of meditation with the breath that I was talking about at the beginning. So sometimes before you go to bed, maybe 15 minutes, you can just sit and give yourself the suggestion. Now, the other thing is, the sub, because the subconscious mind doesn't sift into categories and doesn't make judgments like the conscious mind, it will not discern. It's, it's like taking orders from you and will not discern what you want and what you don't want. That's the job of the conscious mind. <clears throat> so you don't want to put negations, what you don't want, in your subconscious mind. So let's say that you have a bad habit that you've been doing that you want to quit. So let, let's just say it's smoking. I want to quit smoking. So as you cannot think about quitting smoking without first thinking about smoking. 
It's like saying, don't think of a purple elephant. <laughs> Any negation requires that you think first about the thing that you don't want. So by sending yourself the suggestion, I'm going to stop fill in the blank. I'm going to stop being angry. I'm going to stop smoking. I'm going to stop eating junk food. All you're doing is programming yourself to get more angry, smoke more, and eat more junk food. Because <laughs> you're getting the images and the suggestion of that. The subconscious mind cannot process a not. So you have to think about what you want instead. So I see myself making healthy choices. I see myself uh, enjoying good water uh, and drinking good water. I see myself enjoying fresh air. I see myself enjoying uh, eating stuff that's really, really good for me and feeling really, really good. So I begin to paint and build up that picture with my words. And your subconscious mind will respond to audible suggestion, but also respond very powerfully to images. Now, you've got to realize which one are you more geared towards. I'm definitely more auditory. Uh, I respond much better to inward suggestion than I do sometimes inward imagination. But you can make that imagination in your mind while giving yourself the suggestion in a positive way. Make it short, make it simple. I'm, my body is getting healthy. You can talk to your cells. You can talk to your body. You can talk to your immune system. I, th another thing that I can do almost without fail is if I burn my hand on something, if I touch something hot uh, and pull it away, I can suggest to my cells, you are no longer in danger. You no longer need to alert me. And the pain will almost instantly go away, and I and I, I don't think I've had a blister since I've started doing that. I think I told you guys the story how I got attacked by a school of jellyfish, uh, Portuguese man of war, and when I was on the beach in Miami, and I was just just bright red all up front, and I just gave myself the suggestion: I'm not in that harm's way anymore. My immune system can calm down. I have healthy skin. I'm not in harm. I'm safe. I'm safe. I'm out of that situation. You don't need to alert me. That's what I would tell my body. You don't need to alert me anymore. Now, I know I'm using a negation there, but it worked. Within 30, 35, 40 minutes, all that stuff was gone. All the locals I talked to said, you know, I should have been screaming in pain and going to the emergency room. So that's different than praying, oh, God, Jesus, will you please heal my uh, skin rash? Oh, Lord, will you please heal my burn? Um, you're negating your own power when you do that. This is simply making the suggestion to yourself and getting the image in your heart and letting the subconscious mind open up and receive it and then produce it for you in your life. Because the thing that it says, and I'll leave you with this in Mark chapter 4 if you go and read it. Finally, it says the earth brings forth fruit of itself or the earth brings forth fruit by itself. First the blade, then the ear then the full corn in the ear. After that, the harvest has come and the sower becomes the reaper. The conscious mind eats the fruit of it. But here's the key phrase. The earth brings forth fruit of itself. The earth brings forth fruit by itself. 
not receiving something from God in heaven who abides in heaven somewhere. See, the, here's the subconscious structures that we have. Our, our subconscious structures are that God's out there somewhere. We don't know where. We haven't got a clue where. We don't know if it's in another dimension. We don't know if it's out past outer space. We just know he's in heaven someplace. Our Father who art in heaven, he's out there somewhere. <clears throat> and he's on a throne. And his will be done. And so, if something's going to happen, God's going to do it. And we don't really understand, like, like, how does that work? God sends an angel to do it. God, God's hand or arm moves. See, as long as you have that structure abiding in your subconscious, that will be what you produce. That will be the God that relates to you. That will be your reality. Because that's the world that you've chosen to create. That's the world you've chosen to create. If you can dismantle that structure... And begin to operate from everything is connected. Everything is made of mind substance. That mind substance is the intelligence that is everywhere throughout the universe. It's the divine matrix. And I'm wired into it. And in fact, every thought that I'm thinking is somehow connecting with it or coming from it. <laughs> it's not trapped within my skull. And that this life power, this divine life power is neutral. And I'm in this world of polarity in order to learn how to manifest and learn how to be God. Then I am working and manifesting with my subconscious, with my subconscious mind and my conscious mind, working and cooperating and flowing together in order to manifest and create the life that I came here to live. All right. So I hope, uh, I hope that was helpful for you. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I hope it wasn't too confusing. I hope I didn't upset anybody with my tarot card or uh, uh, whatever else. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of past upsetting people, but <laughs> I'm not just doing this for myself. I'm doing this for people, so uh, I'm, I'm working on my people skills. Uh, maybe that's what I should start suggesting to myself, that I'm, I'm uh, very smooth and, and comfortable and magnetic uh, with people. I think, think maybe I'll do that. If you guys have questions, you can go ahead and put them in the in the comments, and I'll try and get back with them. Um, I hope that you guys are doing great and uh, love you. Thank you so much for watching. If you're watching later, thank you so much for watching. Um, again, God bless you. Namaste. The divine in me recognizes the divine in you, and I honor you.